Hey, Jaywalkers. I missed you. A little rundown on today's episode. We're covering gun control. It's a big, hairy issue, and I'm excited to tear into it. You may be used to my opinions being dotted through the episode, or being at least most of the episode. But today, I'm going to be holding that to the takeaway at the end. We'll be covering some historical context, rummaging through the opinion bins on either side of the issue, and then looking at the ramifications of my takeaways at the end. This will hopefully be fairly uncomfortable at points for everybody. Those are growing pains. Whether or not this changes anybody's opinion at all isn't the point. It's to remember that we're all coming to this from different places, and to understand each other a little bit better, even when we disagree. This is tentatively the new flow for the episodes, barring my personal opinion pieces, which will hopefully be put out as occasional extras in the future, rather than main episodes. My sources will be linked in the description. I only have free use or limited free use sources, so this should be accessible to everyone. Next month's topic is going to be affirmative action. If you have a source or point for me to consider for that, or you feel like I missed in today's episode, let me know at jaywalkthroughlife at gmail.com, and that's all one word. A quick warning that the focus of today's episode will be on the U.S. Quite a bit of the history is focused on European nations, particularly Britain, and some of the areas they colonized. So let's lace up. Turns out that the ancient Romans had a form of gun control, if you want to call it that, in that no weapons or armies could legally cross the Rubicon River. You might remember this from history class, specifically Caesar crossing the Rubicon. He committed treason against Rome by taking his army into the city and making himself the new head of state. Now we're going to fast forward into Britain. We'll get Henry VIII when there were actually guns. <laughs> there were restrictions on ownership based on how much you were worth, the length of the barrel, and when they may be fired. You couldn't even have a gun in certain areas of the city or town unless the alarm had been raised to protect the town. Between the 17th and 18th centuries, Parliament began loosening restrictions on who could own guns, as well as the kind of guns they could own. In 1649, Sadler wrote, Men ought indeed to have arms, and them to keep in readiness for defense of king and kingdom, in his The Rights of the Kingdom. Four decades later, during the drafting of the English Declaration of Rights, Thomas Durrell proposed every substantial householder in any town or city should be provided of a good musket in case of invasion. In 1693, a proposal to allow every Protestant to own a musket failed on the grounds that the government would be arming the mob. Allowing that many people to own guns was considered unsafe for the government. This is contrary to what Scottish philosopher Adam Ferguson would say in the 1750s, which is that while there may be a few domestic incidents, it shouldn't deter us from the necessary steps of arming people for their own defense against a foreign enemy. It is about the same time that militia reform was occurring in Britain under the reign of George II. Now, in a practice dating back to Mary I in the 1550s, George II ordered that militia arms were to be kept by the local lord's lieutenant and only distri distributed for training and warfare. This was to keep them otherwise out of people's hands and safely stoked. This is where the colonial model differed from the English model. The colonial model, which becomes the U.S. model, took class out of the equation. Any man could join the militia of his own accord, as long as he was considered a person, legally speaking. In fact, all men were legally required to be eligible for draft in their local militia, and the care of weapons they would need to be if called on to serve. 
the law only pertained to service in the militia through nearly the entirety of the history of the country. Elsewise, in Port Arthur, Tasmania, uh, Australia, in 1996, there was a shooting. A man killed 35 and wounded 18 in an afternoon. Within six months, a massive buyback program was in place with a few new regulations on who can own guns and which type. There was no further legislation until a similar shooting in 2003 that killed two. Over in Africa, we have the Bamako Declaration on African Common Position on the Illicit Proliferation, Circulation, and Trafficking of Small Arms and Light Weapons, passed December 1st, 2000. It recommends that the 51 signing states create laws banning or restricting the sales of and ownership of smaller guns within their bounds. Now, the history is fairly tug-of-war as we've heard. Since the creation of guns, we've been trying to decide who should be able to possess them, what type they should be able to possess, and what hoops they need to be able to jump through to actually obtain those weapons. We also learned in the beginning that this hasn't been limited to guns, but whatever our society is considered a weapon of war since before Caesar took Rome. For the opinion pieces, I pulled a pro-gun ownership article from a small newspaper, an anti-gun article from Time Magazine, and a pro-gun control article from the Duke Law Review. These will all be linked in the description. I will also reference some more extreme views that are taken mostly from my own experiences on Facebook. Those will not be sourced, but will be dissected. If you haven't listened to the Great Potato Debate, Episode 1, be warned that I have a particular disdain for views that can be summed up in memes. I don't think any of us really believe in those views because they're usually quite extreme, but their nature is catchy and provocative. Now, from that smaller paper, nobody wants dangerous people to have access to firearms, but all too often gun confiscation laws do not ensure that those found mentally ill receive the care they need. Don't call for more laws that do not address the root cause of violence or allow for due process. The writer also talked about how some of the people call her and other gun owners monsters. Here's a prime example of why we need to remember the humanity of the people we disagree with. Plenty of people own firearms and responsibly stow them and are not monsters. There are people who lawfully possess firearms. It also underscores an issue we often see in this debate, that we either focus on the mental health aspect or the restriction aspect. Gun violence is a many-faceted issue and we cannot afford to be distracted by the idea that we can only care about one piece or the other. The other big thing that this piece brought up, though I didn't include a quote, is that there's a difference in how guns are seen in cities and in more rural areas. In a city, all a gun can really be used for is to cause a problem or protect yourself. In a more rural area, a gun can catch your dinner or get rid of a predator that's been causing problems with your crops or livestock. A gun is a tool more than a weapon. The second piece is actually anti-gun control. It's a Time Magazine article with a criminologist. They point out that violent and gun crime have been declining since the 1990s, even though there's been an average rise of 10 million guns a year being legally owned in the U.S. There also isn't a simple or quick fix that just requires the political will to fix the gun violence problem in the U.S. It's not that easy, as the prior piece pointed out. Speaking of that political will, let's go back a few minutes to that buyback in Australia. It was wildly successful there. There hasn't been one in the U.S. that's been anywhere near that successful. People in the U.S. have historically been wary to turn in their guns to the police, at best. 
and to steal the enabler's gun and sell it at a buyback at worst. Typically, we are apparently a people who would sell our guns at a buyback so we can buy a newer model. Even the most conservative, pun not intended, kind of, estimates put 30% of homes in the U.S. as owners of firearms. That part of our culture that fights against selling our guns to police and leaving it at that also seems to be the one in control when we talk about legislation. We see compensation schemes in the U.K. and Australia or the legal repercussion of possessing a firearm in a place like China or North Korea, which we view as places opposite our cultures of freedom, and we don't want any piece of it. The biggest issue that the interview brings to light, at least to my mind, is one I've seen in several places. That the AR-15 is just a rifle with a semi-automatic chamber and a particular body casing to make it look more like a machine gun. It only loads one bullet at a time, only fires one bullet at a time, and doesn't spray like some of the submachine guns that look similar in the movies. It just doesn't work like that. It's a fairly standard semi-automatic, which is a term that means it doesn't fire more than one shot at a time. There are ways to make it fully automatic, aftermarket accessories and so-called hacks of varying legality, but that's not how they're built or made to use by the manufacturer. Now we can argue about whether people hold to manufacturer specifications or warranty guidelines, but we can't argue about what the gun is physically made to be capable of. Beyond that, between former articles I've read and conversations I've had with and about people who've been in military firefights, even the guns made to do full automatic in war zones don't fire the way we expect them to. They overheat quickly, which makes them useless. The interviewer adds on another note of guns being more of a symbol than a problem. The actual problem is the people most likely to commit gun violence, gang members, drug dealers, and people who have been or plan to be violent. The answer posed by the criminologist being interviewed includes a lot of t jail time for those mo who use a gun in a crime, specifically a violent crime, and worry about where those crimes are most likely. It also says this approach won't catch everybody. All right, everybody. Time to limber up so we can drive to the other side of the street. And it was funny to me. Anyway. Our pro-gun control piece. This is the first thing we should notice about the rhetoric. Uh, our pro-gun control piece. says the first thing we should notice is the rhetoric of reaction has been brought to bear. What that means is the reaction to attempting to pass the legislation is not only that it doesn't work, but it actually works in reverse. The article also points out that we know the cost of trying to use legislation to curtail what we consider bad or unwanted behavior. But isn't the point of government to try to curtail behaviors that aren't good for society at large? We'll leave actually answering that question for the takeaway, but it leads into the next point the article makes. One of the primary purposes of the federal government is to prevent one state's lax commerce regulations from infringing on the more strict commerce regulations of another. When it comes to guns, that means the article is arguing that one of the federal government's main responsibilities is to make sure we can't just cross a state border to pick up weapons that would be illegal for us to purchase within the borders of the state we live in. For example, the Gun Control Act of 1968 limits mail-order shipments of firearms to federally licensed dealers who are required to obey state and local ordinances in conducting their business. They make the analogy to driving. 
you have to take the initial test and prove that you have the legal knowledge and a certain amount of practice to get the initial license. But it doesn't stop once you have the license. You have to be driving a vehicle that meets a minimum, minimum threshold of safety in a manner deemed safe for the place, time, and weather, and in the right places in the right state of mind. The way we use the law to avoid accidents and vehicular death doesn't rely solely on the threat of punishment. And the, ar the article argues that we should extend that way of thinking to the way we treat gun violence. The authors expand that to say, if we wanted to rely on the threat of punishment to deter gun violence, then we would, quite frankly, be looking to the criminal justice system fully as a way to prevent it. If we could trust that, then we wouldn't need other laws for that purpose. The article does talk about the argument that criminals will always be able to get guns, but I'm going to let that segue into the next section. Extremist and memist arguments for and against gun control. Like I said, I don't think anybody really believes these things, more than a handful of people at least, but they're catchy and they're quickly shareable. I've caught myself sharing memist political beliefs, some of which I'll share when I talk about politics as a steam, team sport, which is coming soon on the docket. One of the big ones which I've seen is, can I call it a bumper sticker if it took the whole back windshield? Anyway, it was a quote, allegedly from Mein Kampf, about Hitler disarming his people, or at least certain portions of it, to keep the people from being able to fight back. This is referred to as the Nazi gun control argument in academic circles. It's also not entirely accurate. After their loss in the First World War, the Weimar Republic tightened restrictions on gun ownership for all German citizens. Hitler relaxed those restrictions for party members almost exclusively. Even if the party had allowed Jewish citizens to own firearms, they made up about 1% of the population. Anti-Defamation League director Abraham Foxman said in January 23 press release, the idea of supporter, that supporters of gun control are doing something akin to what Hitler's Germany did to strip citizens of gun in the run-up to the Second World War is historically inaccurate and offensive, especially to Holocaust survivors and their families. While the Nazi gun control argument is an interesting study in what-ifs, as an argument for or against gun control, it leaves a lot to be desired. One of the main problems for me is the time between the World Wars was a time where the powers involved, especially Europe, were scrambling to keep from having another global conflict while also trying to prevent economic collapse. Now to pivot to a memist belief, the Chicago argument. Chicago has some strict gun control laws requiring the registration of guns, immediate reporting of stolen firearms, and reporting the sale of a firearm within 48 hours. All guns in a home with a minor must be secured with a trigger lock in a safe or securely hosted, holstered against the body of a licensed carrier. Some gun styles aren't viable in the city or county. Gun sales must also be videotaped and sellers have to receive training in, in identifying straw purchasers and are confined to certain places in, a, in the city at retailers licensed to have and sell firearms. But Chicago's a hub of gun violence, right? Like most cities, Chicago has seen a surge in gun violence since the lockdowns began last year, with the police and mayor's office saying that those numbers are up to where they haven't been since the mid-90s. But CBS News puts Chicago at 28th on the most gun death per capita in the U.S., with 18.38 deaths per 100,000 re residents 
in 2019. On the same list, San Bernardino, California was 18th with 21.23 per 100,000. Philly at 16th with 22.47. New Orleans at 7th with 30.67. Birmingham, Alabama is 3rd at 50.62. And St. Louis tops the list at 64.54. Let's face it, those cities are across the political spectrum and all over the place in terms of their cultures and laws around guns. Now, our last extreme meme kind of belief is that if you want uh, if you want a gun to hold off tyranny, it's pointless because the government has ICBMs and tanks. This is provisionally true if you squint. Most governments have firepower that their citizens can't match, whether that's nuclear, bazookas, large caliber, and fully automatic firearms. That being said, let's look at the Vietnam War. The U.S. Go goes to Vietnam to, uh, help prevent communism from the northern part of the country from spreading to the southern part. We sent some of the best military equipment in the world for this purpose. And we got spanked. I know it's not the way we talk about it in history class in the U.S., but it's the truth. We sent M1s, M4s, and M16s. Helicopters. Tanks. Often in the beginning, out in the jungles that were the theaters of conflict, the winning weapons were pits with spikes, homemade shotguns, and vintage handguns from the First Indochina War. The Chinese gov government and the Soviets gave the Viet Cong an equipment upgrade, but they were only one of the forces fighting for the North Vietnamese at the time. The point here is that superior weapons only matter so much, and the U.S. military has lost to a band of determined patriots before. Here's the part where I get to editorialize. Now, it wasn't easy to hold off on that while writing the rest of this, and there may be parts where I wasn't as good as I thought about keeping my opinions out of the summarization. I tried to remain faithful to the intent of the sources while rewriting their points to fit the tone I'm looking for. Kind of a side note, I'm going to be going back during the editing process to see if I got a fairly equal time for both sides of the argument. It's something that seems almost trivial, but can be used as a subtle influencer, whether consciously or not. Now, gun control is a massively complicated issue. Hearing the calls for complete bans and complete deregulation make me nervous, because that kind of extremist thinking really avoids humanizing the people we disagree with and ignores nuance. I take heart in knowing that most people are more in the middle than that. When we focus on legislating guns and gun owners, we downplay a lot of what causes gun violence. Poverty, mental health, struggles, addiction, they all play into violence in general, and that's not including people who just want to be violent. When we put the blame on the guns, we give ourselves a passive sorts to not work on these problems, even though people have been known to be violent using whatever's handy. Think about the truck attack in East France, or the Boston bombing, or the knife attack in London in 2019. But we can't just have everybody carrying unregistered guns everywhere. Students bringing them into school every day. No idea who owns which firearms. We've seen how much more effective guns are at creating a mass murder event, even when the guns were purchased fully legally by a licensed individual. I guess my big takeaway is that we should be encouraging licensing so that we can make sure that people know how to use and store a firearm safely. We should encourage proper registration 
to prevent guns from falling into the hands of abusers or people who have committed violent felonies. We should be encouraging shop owners to continue training to avoid se selling to straw purchases, but by voting with our dollars. There's the rub. We need to mix laws with buyer power and other initiatives. We can't solve gun violence without solving the issues that cause people to solve their problems with guns. This means making gun violence or drug dealing look like less of a viable option to lift a family out of poverty. It means making mental health services more accessible countrywide to reduce suicide risk. Suicide, by the way, accounts for around two-thirds of gun deaths in the U.S. We need to find a way to address those random violent urges that seem to take a hold of people, which I don't currently have an answer for, especially political or religious extremists. The first step is to stop using phrases like gun nut. They're reductive, and they're not good for finding solutions. Remember that we're all just looking for a good balance between freedom and safety. And we all come from a different place where guns are concerned. Some of us have used them to catch our dinner, others in service to their country, and some have only seen them as tools for destruction. The sooner we can start talking about where we come from, the sooner we can come to agreements about how gun control should be implemented at all levels of government. Before I go, I'd like to thank my partner in crime, the love of my life, and my co-creator, Lachey, for putting up with me and helping make this and all of our other endeavors possible. And as always, you can add to the conversation via email at jwalkthroughlife at gmail.com, and I'll see you next time.